I thought today I would begin uh, this morning with a little thought exercise. Now, I didn't come up with this thought exercise. Somebody actually uh, did this to me or ran this, uh, did this to me, ran this uh, thought exercise uh, through with me uh, once upon a time. So I thought I'd just, I'd try it on you guys and see if we had the same sort of thought patterns and that kind of stuff. Um, Don't panic. I'm not going to ask you at any point to stand up and share publicly uh, what you were thinking or what went through your head. I'm not like my brother, Sean. Um, I'm not going to be doing that to you. I'll just leave that to the Holy Spirit. So far safer in that space, aren't you? Anyway, here, here it is. Here's what I want you to think about just for a, a few minutes. Uh, what would you do if somebody just walked up and said, here's a million dollars? Just let your imagination unfold. You've been given a million dollars, no strings attached. You don't have to pay tax on it. You don't have to hand in any receipts about it. No one's checking up on you, anything like that. Just get to it and spend it. Like you literally have just a moment now just to have a little think, let your mind wonder, what would you do with that million dollars? So once we get past how much we tithe and whether or not we, we donate or perhaps just buy outright the, the stair lift and I think, you know, some money towards an awesome kind of coffee machine up the back there. We're off and running, aren't we? Now we're free. Our mind is spinning. And I imagine that you imagine that some of the things you thought about was, well, we'd, we'd clear debt or, or buy a house and that's, and that's noble and good. Or we'd, we'd help out family and friends, and again, noble and good. We'd, we'd get a new car, because the one we've got is a little shady, and we don't want to be late for church, so we've got a good car. Let's get that car. Most of us, as we thought about what we do with that million dollars, into our heads came the desire to travel. Like if this was family feud and we said we surveyed 100 people, we put the top five answers up on the board, the top answer of people answering this question, what would you do with a million dollars, is that we would travel. We would take some time out. And I imagine that some of us thought, hmm, million dollars, Pulsar Trail 2 LRF Thermal Scope. Tika T3X Super Vermin 3006 Rifle accompanied by a... 79 series dual cab land cruiser, maybe a uh, Trek SLR 9 carbon bike just to keep fit. I imagine some of us may have thought about a million dollars before. It's kind of fun to daydream about what you do with a million dollars. How are you guys going with your million? Some of you are going, are we in the right building? Is this really church? Uh, What's going on here this morning? But I wonder also, as you thought about how you'd spend your imaginary million dollars, you then began to think, after a little while, you know, a million dollars really isn't that much. I mean, once I get the house I need, I'm going to be holidaying in the Pakenham, you know, big four caravan park. I don't know if there is one out there, but you know, that's, that's where you could be. I could easily burn two million. Imagine what I could do with two million dollars. How crazy is it 
that we can become dissatisfied in a small space of time with a free hit at a million dollars. Some of you are thinking, oh, I didn't get there, I didn't get dissatisfied. You don't worry, we're dealing with pride in a couple of coming weeks. Okay, so we get you guys too. That's just a joke, don't walk out. It's all good. But I, but I think given enough time, a few more minutes, most of us would have gone, man, I need more. I need more to live out my dreams. Ah, oh, what have I done to you there, John? I just need to go to the, thank you, brother. You know, very rarely, in fact, almost never, does anyone ever think that they have an issue with money or even an issue with greed or covetousness? We never really view ourselves as being greedy. And part of the reason for that is, is uh, relativism. Most of the time, we live in, a, in, our, in, a, in the same sort of socioeconomic bandwidth. So when you, when you look around, you, you don't feel like you live too excessively. It's easy to justify your use of wealth. And when you look up, because we never, ever look down, the next bandwidth, you reason that you really don't have too much money. So wanting a little bit more is perfectly reasonable. It's not outrageous. It's, it's just moving up into the next bandwidth. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, I meant to bring it down here and show you. It's a great, it's up in my office there. It's a great little book. In chapter three, uh, Money Changes Everything, says this. As a pastor, people come to me to confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin. Almost. I cannot remember anyone coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and the people around me. Greed hides itself from its victim, Callas says. And, and, and he pastors in New York, Manhattan, so, so people are coming out of the stock exchange and going to his church. Now, I've not been in ministry as long as Tim Keller, and certainly not in a place like Manhattan. However, I too have never had anyone come to me and say, I think I have a disordered love for money and material possessions, apart from myself, that's robbing me of a healthy spiritual life, causing anxiety, relational division and envy. Envy. These kinds. No one's ever walked in and said, hey, I want to discuss that, Mason. Not yet. Maybe after this sermon. I don't know. And if you're thinking, oh, this stuff's a little uncomfortable, try being the guy who wrote the sermon. <laughs> and my heart is just as vulnerable as yours. It's, it's in need of just as much nurturing as yours. We live in a culture that is constantly telling us that better is better, that upgrading and renewing because new stuff is exciting. It brings new levels of experience. It brings new levels of meaning, new senses of fulfillment. And what's more, you, you deserve that. You, you, should, you should be getting more. The stuff you have is worn. It's a good three days old. It's out of date. And once you've owned something for a while, it becomes common and familiar boring the excitement's gone you need new stuff to bring new experience new life you know what it's like you thought a three-bedroom house was the pinnacle until you lived in it and then you thought man we could do with a fourth bedroom we could do with an extra living room to to to, to hide the kids in you thought an iphone 200 
was all the phone you'd ever need until they brought out an iPhone 201 and it talks to your fridge and your oven and, and when you get out of bed, there's waffles waiting for you. That kind of thing. I want that phone. The reality is every new toy that we accumulate today is just waiting for a sticker to be put on it in a garage sale tomorrow. Do you know one of the most booming industries in Australia at the moment, and in fact globally, is storage units. It's worth $1.5 billion annually in Australia alone. It's, it's considered one of the most secure investments because people are just so addicted to buying more stuff and they don't have anywhere to put it. And they never will. You know, I need a bigger gun safe. That kind of thing. And this is not a cultural issue, though. The Bible calls it a heart issue. Our hearts are prone to disordered loves, a desire for things and experiences of creation, rather than the creator who made our hearts for him, to get our meaning, to get our experience, our joy, our security out of him. And the Bible uses a word for this, and it's called idolatry, the misplaced worship that flows out of disordered loves and the chaos of sin. So it's not merely a cultural issue, and it's not just particular people or a particular point in time. No one is immune to this. This is a, a heart issue. We are in the Gospel of Luke, as you heard this morning, a historical account of the life of Jesus that Luke has put together from eyewitness uh, accounts under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Luke's hope is, in writing this account, that when, he's finished, that when you finish reading this and when we're finished going through it, maybe you know, 2030 or something like that, that you will have uh, come to life in you as the same Holy Spirit that inspired this book now illuminates it into your heart and starts to cultivate its truths and its realities into your heart, that there will come to life in you a trust and a confidence in the person of Jesus, that Jesus will become what the heart longs for, what the heart wants more of. As he brings us into a relationship with God, warms our hearts with affection for God, and then all of a sudden there lies a greater desire in our hearts, a confidence that turns all the disordered loves upside down, that becomes a relationship of greater desire and one that shapes our motives and our actions and our interaction with the world. One based in the claims that Jesus has made, the works that we, have, we read about him doing, his victory over sin that he can apply to your lives so that sin's chaos and its condemnation no longer shape or enslave or master you. And, and his resurrection to eternal life and relationship with God as a father, intimate, eternal, that is also applied to you in a way that it becomes a concrete reality that allows you to live, as we talked about last week, unafraid and unashamed, to live without anxiety, to live free of, of, of needing to place our, 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 our security in more stuff that we can accumulate. Luke has told us that Jesus has come to create a new community of people fit for the kingdom of God, people with transformed hearts that have been turned upside down and are now reprioritized. Reprioritize to care for the poor out of our riches. Reprioritize to be compassionate to people who are hostile. Reprioritized 
to, to, to give grace in the face of in, indifference, to love God and to have our hearts warm with affection and intimacy with him and not to be anxious for our souls, but rather now to live rich, and that's a relational word, not a financial word, to live rich towards God and towards our neighbors. That's what we're discovering as we travel through Luke. In our passage today, Jesus' journey is interrupted uh, by this petition from this anonymous man in the crowd. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Remember that Jesus has been teaching his disciples in the crowd. Uh, and whenever we read that Jesus turned and, and, and spoke to his disciples in this crowd, it's always the crowd can overhear what's going on. And so they're in this too, but Jesus is talking specifically to his disciples about how to take a spiritual stand, how to live unafraid and unashamed of their faith in Jesus and their love of God. These are relational priorities. Jesus has probed the motivation of the Pharisees around spiritual hypocrisy, these relational priorities. He's seeking to build confidence in his disciples and their convictions around him. Again, relational priorities. There's a theme that can, that can emerge out of this teaching narrative as Jesus heads towards Jerusalem that can help us diagnose our own hearts. And that is this theme of disordered loves that Jesus keeps addressing. Relational priorities, disordered loves. Spiritual hypocrisy is a disordered love priority. You love people more than you love God. So you live with two different sets of values in order to try and pull it both off. And a lot of the time as Jesus addresses these things, he calls on, the, on the, um, the creation order in his parables to remind people of God's care, to remind people of God's concern and love for them. And he uses it as a tool to build confidence. You know, look at this sparrow, think about the hair on your head, all this kind of stuff, to build confidence in God and his care for us, to, to reprioritize our relational convictions. In the order of creation, humanity are to love God above all other relationships. We are created to know God and have that relationship with him, then fuel everything we do. And then we are to love each other based on that love that we find in God. And then we are to have, we see then, like at another level, care for creation, exercised in stewardship. Creation is a gift to be subdued. And that word subdued can mean to be, to, to be brought into order, to, to make it work well, to give it rhythm, to, and then to nurture it and cultivate it for human flourishing. Creation provides for humanity as God designed it. What sin does is it flips this whole creation design on its head, as pictured in Genesis 3, humanity places a relationship with creation. At the top, we see humanity subdued by a creature, by, by an animal, by a conversation with a snake that we read there. Only this creature is not seeking to bring order. This creature is seeking to bring chaos. And then humanity acts autonomously from God, not in relationship with God, but then they place conversations with each other above that. God is left out of the picture as they choose how they will relate and deal with creation. And this is the pattern of disordered loves that sin fuels ever since. And this is the pattern of disordered loves that fuels this man's request of Jesus. Augustine, he's a third, fourth century father, church father, father of theology really, uh, says this, and uh, disordered loves motivate sin, usually 
It is over love of something other than God, the pleasure or the security or the experience is a desire that overmasters that which we are designed to encounter in God. Well, I imagine that plenty of people made requests of Jesus. Luke tells us that this crowd was so large and so big that people were trampling over each other uh, just to get to Jesus and see what was going on. But Luke chooses to include this request. There was probably dozens, hundreds, because this request is on mission for Jesus, but not as the inquirer had hoped. You can imagine this bloke just out of his mind, anxious, just waiting for a moment, just wants to talk to Jesus, get his request out on the table. Would you just shut up for a second, Jesus, so I can ask you this question? So focused on his issue, he is that he's not even hearing a word that Jesus is saying about disordered loves. And so he approaches Jesus with his own. But it would have been perfectly appropriate and expected that a rabbi could and would settle the matter of an estate. So it is appropriate that he approach Jesus. Rabbis were trained and expected to do this kind of thing. But Jesus is no ordinary rabbi. And we've seen that again in Luke. He does not speak like your usual rabbi. Luke uh, has noted this. Back in chapter 4, uh, verse 32, the people are astonished at Jesus' teachings, for his word possesses power. Like Jesus speaks with a certain authority. He doesn't go, hey, rabbi, such and such says this, and I kind of agree. He just says, I say, I say to you. He speaks with the authority of God itself. And in verse 36, the authority of Jesus' spoken word is not just limited to his ability to apply God's word and, 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 and its nuance to, your, to people's lives, but also his words have power over even spiritual forces. I say, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands unclean spirits. Jesus has come to bring people into a right relationship with God. He has not come to bring uh, property to people. That's not his lane. So Jesus' refusal here to get involved in a family dispute is not Jesus denying his right or his ability to sort out this particular matter. Nor is Jesus showing no concern for social issues and an indifference to claims around legal justice. But he will use it as an opportunity to teach that there is a, that there is a greater gain than getting an inheritance. And there is a greater loss than losing it. True to form, Jesus turns to the area of life that no rabbi has the authority over, that no rabbi or teacher has the right to judge. And that is the motivations of a heart, the actions of a heart. Jesus goes in there. This man has not asked if Jesus can sit down with the two brothers and look over the estate and the laws and, and make an objective decision. He has sought to co-opt Jesus to find in his favor. That's what he's asked Jesus to do. I want you to find in my favor. The priority in this man is desiring stuff over relationships. This is the true motive of this man's heart. He doesn't care if he blows the family up to get what he wants. Jesus refers to this inquirer as man, not brother, not friend. It's far from cordial. Cordial. Cordial is a drink. You know the word I want. Revealing that there is no relationship between them. 
Who made you man? Who made me judge and arbiter over you? And just a, a, a thought point here. This man approaches Jesus as a rabbi who can help Jesus get what he wants. That's how he's approaching Jesus. This is part of the disordered loves. Here's something to think about. What makes up the majority of our approaches to Jesus? Are the majority of our approaches to Jesus about stuff, about things we want, things we want to obtain, things we want to get? Do a little thought exercise like you did with the million dollars. Do we approach Jesus like a genie in a bottle? Or do we approach, or is our, our desire just to approach Jesus? Because there is a rich relationship there. Jesus brings us into intimacy with God. Jesus says to this man, you want me to make decisions about your life? You want me to be judge and arbiter in your life? No worries. But I don't settle property matters. I examine hearts. I expose disordered loves. I've come to reverse the chaos of sin in people's lives by finding a greater order, a greater reason, a greater desire to live in me. Jesus is self-referencing. This is, Jesus, this is not Jesus denying his role as judge. This is Jesus clarifying. Now, Jesus has said in, in this chapter, in chapter 12, that he is involved in the judgment of people. So Jesus says, let me tell you a little parable that may help you see what I see as I examine your heart. The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for you for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Well, this whole parable anchors itself on Jesus' warning to guard your hearts against covetousness. And he gives the anchor point of being rich towards God, of being in a, a rich relationship. It's a relational term towards God. Jesus frequently uh, when it comes to our relationship to money and, and possessions, he talks on it in relational ways. He talks on it more than he talks on heaven. He talks on it more than he talks on how on he does on sexual ethics. Jesus uses and often uses our relationship with wealth and money and food as props in parables to expose deeper issues. Disordered love priorities like greed and envy, indifference, selfishness, a lack of uh, the un understanding of the transcendent, in this case, covetousness, and also a lack of, transcend of the understanding of the transcendent, an over-desire for, for grain and goods, for material possessions is at play. Jesus says the man in this fool, in fact, he says that God uh, calls this man a fool, 
It sounds a bit harsh. Uh, we often like to think of God as, and Jesus as being nice, politically correct, and not saying things to shake us up. But here we find God calling this man a fool. This parable is not an actual incident. So Jesus can, can heighten, can, can use this kind of strong language to heighten certain element, elements, to illustrate his point. It's confronting to hear Jesus, uh, God call you a fool. That life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. These objects are not to be equated with, with true living. In fact, they can become a substitute for the proper object of your heart, God. So take care. Be on guard against this, is what Jesus is trying to push across the table. But this man is a fool. This man in the parable, because of his disordered loves that flow from or, or, or give expression to a covetous heart, a covetous heart that yearns for more, that dreams of more, is constantly dissatisfied and always seeking more. And Tim Keller, I think Tim Keller uses this analogy of if you want to know what your heart is set on, if you want to know what the idols of your heart are, think about what you dream about, what are your dreams and what are your nightmares? Like when you're quiet moments, when you've got nothing to do, your mind's spinning, where does it go? What does it dream about? What does it fantasize about? That's a great way to check what the idols of your hearts are. Nightmares. If you were to lose, what's the nightmare? If you were to lose something in your life, and that would mean you are utterly overwhelmed, completely devastated, have no reason to continue to live. This is a nightmare. This is an idol. It's taken a place in your life, a disordered love priority. Well, this man is a fool because he attributes his success and the, the source of his wealth to himself. In the parable, Jesus clearly states that it is the land of, of the rich man that produces plentifully. So this guy is already wealthy and he has a farm somewhere that he owns and it has yielded a bumper year. But even if this man were to somehow kind of uh, put himself into the process somehow, it's still only and always with the abilities and the resources that God has given him. Again, Jesus turns to the order of creation. God has designed the land to provide for our needs. Now, you may farm crops on it, and, and sorry, not many, God has designed the land to fulfill our needs. And not many of us are familiar, sorry, uh, with, with cropping. We don't, you know, there's not too many crops sitting around here in, in Chelsea. Maybe we're up in Hilston, uh, where I get occasionally we would be. But there's different ways, this, this, this farming in this modern context, we can think about that in different ways. Maybe you use your mind to farm, to develop ideas and intellectual property. Maybe you use your talents to farm, to create, to cultivate uh, great art, music, medicine. Or maybe you farm, you, you use your ability to create technology, creating more sustainable ways to live. Or your, your farming is the fact that you work in the building industry. You use your talents, your abilities, your skills to create and build architecture, houses, infrastructure. The fool says he has no concept of the transcendent. That, it is, that, it, that these things, these good things come from God. But rather the fool says that they are 
all of his own making. No concept of the goodness and the loving design, the care of God to give us these good things. The psalmist, Isaiah, James, all say, all tell us uh, that God, it is God that gives and brings what we need into our lives. It is God that has designed the rain to come to the land to produce, the mind to create, the body to build. God is the giver of all good things. A heart with disordered love priorities has no concept of the transcendent. No fear of God, as Jesus outlined last week. He's not rich to God relationally. He's not rich in, in gratitude and thankfulness for the gifts that he is giving, but rather sees them only as rights and possessions under their command, under their authority to accumulate more, to do with what they see fit. If we are not rich toward God for what we have, big or small, then maybe we should examine our hearts. The man should have praised God as the one who provides, but instead he builds barns. Instead, covenant, covetousness makes him anxious and insecure. He has to take care of his own future. It turns him inward to secure his comfort. It's this covetousness, this disordered love that makes this man foolish to how he uses his material wealth, thinking only of himself. There is no less than 11 personal pronouns in this parable. There's this internal dialogue in which this man is in, and he consults himself again and again. No thought towards God, which allows for a lack of thought and care and concern for his neighbor or for the poor or for the hungry. It's all just, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store stuff. I will do this. I, 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 me, me, me. Even to the point where he talks to his own soul as if it's an autonomous being. My soul. This story is 2,000 years old, but it could not reflect modern culture any better. Of the 50 words in this parable, 18 are about self-interest. There is a strong sense of self-entitlement, not stewardship, which means he can be indifferent to social obligations. He can be indifferent to caring for others. Augustine comments that the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barn. If he had stowed away in the bellies of the poor, yeah, he would have been eaten up, of course, digested on this earth, but in heaven it would have been kept all the more safely. He could have even, in the culture, gone to the local priest in acknowledgement of the goodness of God and as an offering handed over some of his wealth, some of his riches in worship to God, to aid the worship of others to God. But disordered loves makes us self-absorbed, selfish and indifferent to God and indifferent towards the poor. If we find ourselves caught up in an internal monologue, dreaming out where we will utilize our wealth for our retirement, for our comfort, our pleasure, so that we can eat, drink, and be merry. 
with no time spent before God, with no sense of obligation to the needy, it's time to check our hearts for disordered loves, for covetousness. Thirdly and finally, and not because we've exhausted everything we in this parable, but you know we're time poor here. This farmer, or this man, sorry, he's not the actual farmer, he owns a farm, is foolish about the time that he has and who it is that is the true owner of his soul. On Saturday, our neighbour uh, came across the road, knocked on our door, which is not unusual. It's a pretty relational little strip where we live in Argyle Avenue. But the look on her face was different. She was there to tell us that a friend who lives just two doors down the road had died, stroke, gone. I was in shock. I still am a little bit. He was such a familiar face, walking, always walking, talking to everyone. The news came as I was writing about this man's lack of thought or concern about his own mortality. This man lives as though this life is all there is, like he doesn't have a care in the world. He even quotes the Bible to support his case. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Right out of Isaiah, right out of the Proverbs. He operates as though he is in control of his enjoyment. He operates as though he is in control of his time on this earth. In a chilling irony, when God tells this man that his soul will be required of him this very night, that God is going to examine how he used the very life that God gave him. Jesus has God using the language of a banker calling in a loan. Your life is on loan to you from God. God is telling this man as he listens in to what he thinks is his own private monologue, this man who gives no concern for his neighbor or towards God as he plans out his long life of comfort, that the time has come for your soul to meet its maker. The time has come for the loan of your soul to come back to the one who made it. Even the resources of time have been given to us by God to use to be rich toward him, to have a heart for this world, to use what we farm, what we cultivate, what we create, what we have been given in worship of God and in care, and, and in care for the poor, to, to, to live out the heart of God as we are in rich relationship with him, we live in generous relationship to others. If we never let our own mortality, and, and, and in this day and age, we, we do not think about mortality. People don't die. They pass away. They go on. We, we, we don't have funerals anymore. We have life celebration. That's all fine. But if we don't let our own mortality, if we never stop to think, man, how long am I here for? What am I going to do? If we never give a single thought to the fact that God sees the monologue of our hearts and have those two things shape how we live, shape the motive of us to be rich towards God 
by using what he gives us to be generous, then maybe we are fools too. Fools whose hearts are suffering from disordered loves. Take care, says Jesus. Guard your heart. Have them always in a living relationship, rich towards God, always before him. Jesus has not come to bring us more of what we already have. Jesus has come to give us what we don't have, richness towards God, a confidence that he is all we need, freeing us up to be rich towards others with what we have. Jesus did this himself by becoming poor, by letting go of all of his riches, by giving up his very life so that we might become rich in him, rich towards God. Let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you again that you are rich towards us with your word, that your care for us, uh, it comes to us in a way where you, ex- you, you seek for us to examine how we live, that we would be shaped by your word, shaped by your son, that the spirit would come and begin to bring this to life in us, that we would be rich towards you in our lives. And as we do, our lives become rich towards others. This morning, as we, as we read through this parable, the point of the parable is to have us examine our own hearts, to see if our hearts are actually rich and secure towards you, or whether or not at some levels we, are, we have our own dreams and nightmares that shape us more than a relationship with you. Our prayer is that as we discover this stuff, that we would not kind of shrink away in shame or or, or anything like that, but rather run in grace towards you, the one who seeks to just renew and transform and restore. And we're grateful for this, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.